Welcome to Grace Point Church. I'm glad you're here. I'm going to begin with a question this morning. How do you measure greatness? How do you measure greatness? Because see, I think, you know, I think great may be the most overused word in the entire English language. We say, have a great day, or you did a great job, or that was really great, or we had a great time. She's a, a great athlete. He's a great artist. They are great parents. I mean, great can go in just about any kind of sentence. In fact, I think great may be the linguistic equivalent of bacon. It just goes great with everything. But how do you measure greatness? Earlier this year, I was on vacation in Northeast India, and I had a brush with greatness. Honest to goodness, royalty. We were going on a, on a safari in an in a animal preserve, and we got to the, to the gate, and we were about to pay our money, and they said, you guys need to move to the side of the road. And so we sat there for a few minutes, and it wasn't very long before a, a caravan of five cars with tinted windows came flying by us, and we looked at each other, and we said, I don't know who that was, but they must have been somebody important. And so we hurried up, we ran across the road, paid our money, got, in the, got back in our car, and floored it to chase after them. Well, you only live once, even in India. So we got, we got to the parking lot, and as, just as they were getting out of their car, and it turns out it was the queen mother of Bhutan. Now, I have to, have to confess that I didn't even know Bhutan had a queen mother. But here we are with the queen mother. Her son is the king. And I'm thinking... Man, I'm only two degrees of separation from a real king. You know, there's not as many kings around as there used to be. I thought, this is really pretty cool. Well, she was at the, at the, at the safari with her, with her daughter and her grandson and, and to ride an elephant. And so we talked to them. In fact, they spoke better English than we do. And we, got, we asked them if we could take a picture with them. And they said, sure. And so this is the picture that we took. They're the ones that look like royalty, we're the ones that look like we got up at 6 a.m. to wait four hours to ride an elephant, okay? Now, this daughter, turns out, she has a degree from Stanford and from Harvard, to which I thought, you know, it must be a really good thing to be a blood relative of the king. Right after this picture, they didn't wait around. They got on their own elephant, and they took off. They traveled with an entire entourage of people. I don't know how many people there were in this entourage, but they traveled with five carfuls. That's what I know. And at some point, you've got to think, have you ever wondered what that life must be like? <laughs> have you ever thought, you know, even if you're a person that doesn't like the spotlight, have you ever wondered what it must be like to have drivers and security and attendants and, and, and privilege? I mean, you don't have to pay to go into the safari park. I mean, they probably go to Disneyland and they just move right to the front of the line. They probably don't. That, now that's greatness, right? There's a definition of greatness for you if you just don't have to wait in any lines at, at Disneyland. But we, are, as a culture, we, we celebrate greatness, don't we? We're enamored with greatness. All across the land this fall in football stadiums all over the, all over the U.S., You'll see this big foam finger that says what? We're number one. We're number one, aren't we? And we invent sayings that say something like, you know, second place is really just the first loser. 
And I think it was Vince Lombardi, the famous Green Bay Packers football coach, who said, winning isn't everything. No, winning is the only thing. And in my lifetime, I believe it was Muhammad Ali who was the first, in my recollection, to declare himself to be the greatest. But even Muhammad Ali was trumped by Ricky Henderson a few years later. Ricky Henderson is a Major League Baseball player, and he broke the all-time stolen base record of Lou Brock and the record for arrogance all at the same time. With the symbol of great base stealing. But today, I'm the greatest of all time. Thank you. Well, you can't get any better than the greatest of all time, can you? It may surprise you to know that for all of our 21st century sophistication and enlightenment and education, that human nature hasn't changed much over the centuries. This desire for greatness has motivated people for thousands of years. And today, we're going to look at how Jesus, the best, and dare I say, the greatest teacher that ever lived, how Jesus measures greatness. Now, if you're not a Jesus follower today, this may just be an interesting lunch topic and a lunch conversation. But if you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, if you take following Jesus seriously, then this is a game changer. Because we're going to look at Jesus's formula for success, for significance, for purpose. And we're going to look at two incidents in Jesus' life. Now, these both were written by eyewitnesses, by, by contemporaries of Jesus. And the first one is written by the Apostle Mark. And it was written in about 65 A.D., which means it was, it was written about 30 to 35 years after Jesus' life. And it's written in such close proximity to the events that it records that from a literary and from a historical perspective, it's the, it's the equivalent of first century Twitter. That's how close the events are to the recording of those events. It's like blogging in real time, if you will. And we're going to look at an incident in which two of Jesus' closest disciples decided that they wanted to be great. They wanted prominence. And we see this story in Mark chapter 10, in verse 35. It says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now, let me pause here for just a second. They had, there were 12 disciples that followed Jesus everywhere. But there were three that were in his inner circle. And those three experienced things that, that the others didn't. And I presume that Jesus had discussions with them that he didn't have with the others. But two of those were James and John of those three. It says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I don't know if anybody's ever asked you that question. And I don't know how you would react to that. But let me just say that I think Jesus was much more gracious in his response than I would have been. But he said to them, because he said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. I don't know if James and John were presuming on their special status among the disciples or, or their close relationship with Jesus, but they were bold enough to say, hey, Jesus, when you're in charge, we want the seats of prominence. Give us 
the, the, the glory and the honor when, you, when your kingdom starts. Now, the reaction of the other disciples was uh, quite predictable, actually. In, 40, in verse 41, it says, When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Big surprise. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Jesus, as he was often prone to do, was about to flip the script on the disciples. He was about to challenge their worldview, their perspective of the way the world worked, of their world order. So here it comes. You ready? But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. Now, that word slave is sometimes translated servant, but in either case, it's the same word. It's the word doulos. And the word doulos can be translated as one who gives himself up to another's will, one that chooses to make another's needs and another's priorities, chooses their priorities over their own. So there it is. The first element of Jesus's formula for greatness is serve. He says, whoever wants to be great must serve. Now, that's counterintuitive for most of us, right? And it's because we begin at the wrong starting point. We ask questions like, what do I want? What are, what are my goals? What are my ambitions? What is greatness going to look like in my life? And it's human nature to want and, and, and to like all the attention that comes with being important. But I don't believe that it's importance that people really long for. I believe it's significance. We want to know if this one life I have is going to matter. We want to know if this one life I have is going to make a difference. And Jesus says, you want to make a difference? You want to matter? He said, serve. About 10 years ago, I was in Banda Aceh, Indonesia, and I was doing relief work after the tsunami there that killed over a quarter of a million people. And I ran into somebody that I had known 30 years earlier when I was a teenager, and he, he was an adult at that time, so he's a little bit older than I am. And uh, I met him there. I hadn't seen him in 30 years. And so we were kind of catching up, and he was asking me questions, and I was telling him how I was... I was working in business, and I told him about my family and all those sorts of things. But it wasn't very long into the conversation before he asked a question that kind of rocked my world. I've never forgotten it. It was a simple question. He said, so what is your ministry? I don't know if anybody's ever asked you that question. I, I, I didn't really know how to respond, but inside I was really defensive. I thought, my what? Excuse me, did you not hear me say, my ministry, did you not hear me say that I was working full-time, that I have a family, my kids are playing baseball, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Did you not hear that part? But his question made me realize that every Jesus follower is meant to be serving. Every one of us. And, you know, why don't more people serve? What makes it hard for you to serve other people? And regardless of what you think of of social media, for instance, like this, you've got to love Facebook because you can ask a question like this and get answers. And somebody did and said, what makes it hard for you to serve other people? And one person said, 
Serving's hard when it doesn't fit into my schedule or plan. You know, like when I want to go for a walk or take a long bath, but my aging parent needs me to sort their meds or run an errand. Somebody else said, you know, it's hard when the needs are endless. I don't want to risk helping and serving because, you know, I might get sucked in. I might be swallowed up in serving and not get to be the me I think I should be. And then my favorite, the one that kind of sums up all the rest of them, it says, what makes it so hard to serve? Others. That's what makes it hard to serve. For far too many people that call themselves Christians, following Jesus is passive. It's a spectator sport. But if you're a Jesus follower, do you know that you were designed to serve? You are designed to make a difference. Paul said it like this in Ephesians. He said, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When you serve others, you're living out the purpose for which you are created. Around Grace Point, we say it like this. Every member is a minister and every ministry is meaningful. Our story goes on in Mark. Jesus is still talking to his disciples. And just in case they didn't get the point the first time he makes it, he reiterates it four verses later. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. He's saying, in my kingdom, the only standard for greatness, the only measure of greatness is serving others. Prominence, seats of honor, influence, those are insignificant unless... You're a servant. So he says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This ransom metaphor is the perfect expression of Jesus' life because a ransom means to to pay for the release of someone else. To which Jesus took to its ultimate conclusion when he chose to die for the sins of all mankind was the greatest act of servanthood that the world has ever seen, that the world will ever see. But this episode in Mark, this incident that we've been reading about, wasn't the only time that Jesus talked about service and its importance in his kingdom. There was a time about two weeks later, the night before Jesus was arrested and ultimately killed, when he had an opportunity to demonstrate once and for all what he meant. And like any good leader... He didn't just talk about it. He chose to show, to demonstrate to the disciples what he was talking about. And we have John's eyewitness account of that night in John chapter 13. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own, meaning the disciples who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The Passover was a really big deal. In, in Jewish life. And I can imagine that the disciples filed in for this Passover feast and they may have hugged each other and they may have gathered around the table, but, but something was missing. The servant who sat by the door and was to wash the feet of everybody that came in wasn't around. See, walking in sandals on the nasty, filthy, dirty roads of first century Palestine where animals and people all used the same road, so you can imagine what they were walking in, that made it imperative that feet be washed before a meal. 
Now, Leonardo da Vinci painted a great picture of his depiction of that night. But with all due respect to him, it probably didn't look quite like that. Because in that day and age, the tables were actually very low. And when people came to eat, they would, they would lean on one elbow and eat off the table into their mouth. And so feet were very much in evidence. And when there was no servant there to wash their feet, apparently it never occurred to the disciples to wash their own feet. And so Jesus, in verse, in chapter, in verse 2, says, During supper, supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And when he poured the water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. How do you think the disciples felt when they saw the one that they believed to be the Messiah taking off his clothes, gathering a towel and a wash basin and kneeling down before them. I imagine that when Jesus started washing their feet, that they were shocked. They were stunned that Jesus, their, their, their master, their teacher, their Lord would wash feet. That was the job done by the lowliest of servants. That was the worst job that you could have. It was usually reserved for the lowest-ranking person in the room. But here was the Son of God going from person to person to person and hand-washing filthy, dirty, calloused, cracking, stinking feet. Jesus was putting his words into action. Paul summed up Jesus' servanthood in Philippians chapter 2 when he said, In humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. There's that word again, servant, Dulos, one who gives himself over to another's will. So the second part of this formula for greatness from Jesus is serve. But it's not just serving. It's to serve with humility. And whether you're in we world or whether you're with students or part of a greeting team or the cafe or the parking lot. Or you're involved with one of the agencies that we highlighted last week in the strategy meeting, or whether you go on a global adventure around the world, what, he, what we should be doing is not just serving. I hope that we are serving with humility. Whose feet are you washing? Whose feet are you washing? Now, I've been accused of not knowing how to spell the word art. But this piece has a prominent place in our house. And I have a smaller representation of it in my office. And it's right at eye level as I go into my office so that every time I go in, 
I see it and I'm reminded that I'm to be a servant, that I'm to be humble and serve with humility. Our story continues in verse 12. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed this place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. Whoops. I'm going to back up. I got out. I saw I got out of space, out of space. Let me go back to Richard Foster. Richard Foster says there's a difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. He said, when I choose to serve, I retain control about whom I serve and when I serve. But when I choose to be a servant, I've given up all rights and all control. Even when we serve, it can be a self-gratifying service, can it? Even when we choose to serve in those occasions when we attempt to serve, it can be very much like holding a garden hose in our hand. And we're in control and we, just, we determine how and when and whom we're going to serve. And the flow of Jesus that we give others may depend upon our, our, on our mood. It may depend on our time. It may even depend on how much sleep we got last night. By contrast, a soaker hose waters everything, waters all over the ground completely and, and, and indiscriminately, I might add. There's dozens of holes that let the water flow out all over the place. And serving like a soaker hose means that we are pouring out Jesus through every pore of our being without regard to the timing of it, without regard to how it affects our priorities or even whether the, whether the recipient is worthy. See, serving with humility is the picture of one who chooses to give up their own priorities to meet someone else's needs. Can I give you an example? Scott and Denise Grindstaff, uh, they, Denise told me that in 2009, they were looking for just where God was at work when they got in, involved in international students. And since then, in the last five-plus years since then, they've had 80 or so or more international students in their home. My favorite story is about a man named Michael. Michael is a Nigerian. He came to their house for dinner on Christmas Eve in 2011, first time they met him. They got to know Michael. They established a strong relationship with him, so, so much so that Michael invited them to come to his wedding in Nigeria. And Scott and Denise went to Nigeria for the wedding. While they're, in the, while they're at the wedding, of course, they met his fiance Abby, and her whole family and got to know them. Well, Michael comes back to go to school here in the States, but because of visa problems, Abby couldn't come with him. And it was about a year later, by the time that Abby came, and, and he, imagine she was leaving everything she'd ever known, leaving her family, coming to a new country, coming to a new husband. And by that time, she had a new baby with her. You can imagine all the turmoil, all the changes going with her, going on in her head. And Denise chose to come along beside her and help her with all those transitions. Did I mention that it was in Louisiana? Huh. Fast forward to last fall. Abby's family, they decide they want to come see their grandbaby. So they come to the States. They're here for several weeks. And after a little while, they decide, you know, we need to take a road trip. 
And because of their, their relationship with Scott and Denise, they decided we're going to come to Northwest Arkansas. And they were here on a Sunday. And so they came to Grace Point Church. Now, here's where I should tell you that Abby's father is a Muslim. And he came to a Christian church. And wouldn't you know it, Lori was teaching. And I can only imagine the, what was going on in this guy's head, this collision of worldviews that here I am, a Muslim in a Christian church, and lo and behold, a woman is teaching. But he heard the gospel that day. And he said afterwards, he said, if every church is like this one, why wouldn't people want to go? But see, Michael and Abby are just two of those that Scott and Denise have intersected with. They've babysat children. They've provided innumerable dinners. They helped one buy a used car. There was a lady that they met randomly in a grocery store. Turns out she was from Ghana. And sometime later, she went into premature labor, and they were her transportation to the hospital. For Denise, these aren't just projects or tasks to be done, but rather this is a ministry of love to friends. And now we've come to John 13, verse 12, when he says, when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just, if I, just as I have done to you. I don't think we need a seminary degree to understand that. Jesus was clearly showing his back expectations of anybody who says that they're following him. He says, I'm giving you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And then a couple of verses later, he said, if you know these things, then blessed are you if you do them. So whose feet are you washing? Whose feet are you washing? Before you answer that, know that serving is not something we are paid to do. Serving is not something that's in a job description. Malcolm Forbes said, you can easily judge the character of a man by how he treats those who can do nothing for him. Serving is about being a doulos, giving oneself over to another's will. Mother Teresa actually said it like this. We are all pencils in the hand of a writing God who is sending love letters to the world. And one of the best ways to serve at Grace Point is through communitas groups. In fact, we say that we, are, we want to be a community for the community. And I know that some of you think that I coined the term communitas so that it would be different it would be hard to explain, and it would be hard to say. I know that. But the reality is that we chose communitas because it embodies the principle of being missional, about being intentional. So I want you to hear from Alan Hirsch, who actually is the guy that coined the phrase communitas, and hear him talk about what it means, what communitas actually means. We have communitas, which is the final piece. Communitas is a community formed in the context of an ordeal, a challenge, a, a task, a mission that requires each player to find each other in a new significant way to get the job done. Friends become comrades. 
team players. All movements that change the world seem to have a, a, a comradeship and a sense of each other's backs that we tend to lack in, in Western expressions of church. If you organize and rally around the flag of mission, that is what we do outside of the church in Jesus' name, you have to do ministry along the way because ministry is the means by which you must do mission. In other words, you have to be loving, you have to be serving, you have to do it together <coughs> in order to actually achieve your mission because you're not going to achieve it otherwise. So communitas takes place along the way of trying to do something that requires that we learn to love each other in a deep and more profound way as a group of brothers and sisters who rely on each other very deeply and are very disappointed when someone maybe doesn't fulfill their task within a given framework because we really do need each other to survive. And like I said, there's nothing evil about being middle class, but one of the bad things about middle class culture is its obsession, safety and security, comfort and convenience, right? There's no question about that. There's, that's, that's the bad side. It's this need to kind of secure the kids, you know. But when that becomes obsessive, it's dangerous to the gospel because it attenuates the gospel because the gospel calls that into question. So what we do is we kind of then, we have to resolve the tension and we usually do it in the name of the family. So the gospel becomes this kind of civil religion that really just affirms my lifestyle. So I, I think that what a middle-class America, therefore a middle-class church, easily co-opts Christianity to be the civil religion. And it's really the country club atmosphere, no threat. It's just nice, safe, it's just part of my world. It's my religious aspect of my world. But I don't experience adventure or journey or quest over there at all. If it doesn't kill you, you're going to make you a lot stronger. But it could kill you. Let's acknowledge that. But you don't really have to be that far out where you, you know, it's like a death-defying, but I think you've got to put yourself out a little bit. But the wonderful thing is you'll learn and you'll find Jesus in new ways and you'll learn to trust God in new ways too. And let's see what God can do through us. Missional living can happen anytime and anywhere. And it can be intimidating to m live missionally and to serve Alone. That's why I strongly believe that the best place to live missionally is in a communitas group. That's why I've asked our communitas groups to identify a mission and a ministry where they're going to be involved in our community. In fact, you can go out in the board around the communitas area out in the gallery and you can see the ones that ha have identified their mission and their ministry. Our challenge is to be missional to intentionally be Jesus to those that we encounter, touching people with the gospel. To live missionally means to, to embody the mission and the purpose of Jesus, to, to, to be the, the physical representation of the gospel to those that we're around. A Jesus follower is called to serve in order to reveal the gospel. Because, see, serving is not the gospel. Even serving with humility is not the gospel. Anybody can do that. But Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Jesus' formula for greatness, the final piece, it says serve with humility 
that leads to the gospel. And the message of the gospel is that the broken and the hurting can have a relationship with the one that created them. And they can find acceptance and forgiveness like they've never known before. The message of the gospel is that there's, there's hope and there's comfort when times aren't going so good. The message of the gospel is that there's purpose in knowing Jesus. There's, you can find purpose in your life. You might say, well, I don't know how to say all that. I, 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 I don't know what to say. I would get confused. Hey, listen, if I could boil the entire Bible down to one verse for you, would you memorize it? You may not have memorized another verse in your entire life, but I'm going to encourage you to memorize this one because if you can memorize this verse, it's only 23 words long, and a lot of them are really short words. If you can identify this, word, this verse, if you can memorize it, you have the gospel. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians uh, 21. He said, God made him who had no sin, meaning Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Serving can provide relief. But without the gospel, there's no reconciliation to God. Whose feet are you washing? Selfless service can be so countercultural that when people see you serving with humility, they take notice and it gives you the opportunity then to say, hey, do you know this Jesus, which is the reason that I serve? Let me tell you about what happens on the first Friday night of every month in a laundromat off 13th Street in Rogers. People start showing up at 4 p.m. and putting their clothes in the washer, even though they don't have enough money to run the washers. They're saving their place because they know that at 6 p.m. there's going to be a whole group of people come, including Abe and Lori Bedeen's Communitas group. There's going to be a whole group of people coming that have quarters for to run the machines and, and have, have food to feed them while, while they're getting their clothes washed. You might go, well, yeah, but they're just waiting for the free stuff. It only happens once a month. People come with entire months' worth of laundry with them. And they've fed as many as 80 people at a time in this small laundromat. In fact, people are each standing up. They had one elderly lady that washed one set of clothes and dried them. And when they were dry, she went into the bathroom, changed clothes, and came back out and washed the other ones. That's all she had. There was another lady that asked for somebody, said, hey, can, can you give me a change of clothes? Because this is all I have to wear. And I love what this Communitas group is doing because they're involved with those that come. They're not just there to wash clothes. Can I tell you about Rosie? Rosie's from Guatemala, a single mom with two small children. And so you can imagine what a month's load of laundry looks like. And she manages, I don't know, half a dozen washing machines all at the same time. But Lori and Abe's Communitas group takes those babies and plays with those babies and walks them around while this mom does laundry. You know what she said? She said, I've never had anybody 
helped me with my babies before. Can I tell you about Rochelle? Rochelle's had a tough life. Uh, she spent some time in prison. And when Lori came in contact with Rochelle, Rochelle was reticent to get involved. But it, at some point she said, do you guys pray? And Lori said, yeah, we pray. And Rochelle says, I don't believe that God can forgive me for what I've done. I don't believe that God can forget what I've done. And Lori goes to her Bible and, in Psalm, and pulls out Psalm 139. She said, do you realize that God knew you before you were formed? God is not finished with you yet. And over the weeks, Rachel's mindset began to change. So where now, instead of coming to wash her clothes, she says, hey, can I help you guys help other people wash their clothes? Lori said, we're feeding their stomachs, but we're also feeding their hearts. And we have other communitas groups that are washing feet at Bentonville Manor and Souls Harbor and Ronald McDonald House and Foster Parents Night Out, and the list goes on and on. I believe that Jesus was talking about people like this when he said this in Matthew 25. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with them, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Then the king will say to those in his right, come, you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we, when, we, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And, and when, did you, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to the one of the least of these my brothers, you did it for me. You know, Jesus' life only lasted 33 years. And yet his example reverberates across almost every civilization and almost every culture. Because his was a life that mattered. His was a life that made a difference. His was a life that meant something. His was a life of purpose. And the key to the greatest, most impactful, most forceful life that has ever been lived, the key to it is that he was a servant to others. Whose feet are you washing? You want significance? You want to matter? You want purpose? Whose feet are you washing? I ask you to bow your heads and be still and consider how, how God's speaking to you. He is always seeking a deeper, more intimate relationship with you.
If you're not a Jesus follower, if you don't know who Jesus is, can I tell you that you can experience acceptance and forgiveness like you've never known before. You can have a relationship with the one that created you, and I would love to talk to you about that. If you are already a Jesus follower, know that God's plan for your life doesn't doesn't mean for you to stand still right where you are, but rather to go deeper, to a more intimate relationship with him. And I don't know what he's calling you to do, but I promise you this, it's going to require obedience on your part. So what is Jesus calling you to do? Father, we come before you today humbly, realizing that the the Son of God washed feet. How can we take any greater position than that? If our leader, our master, our Lord, our teacher washed feet, how can we do anything less, anything more? Father, I pray that you would work mightily in us and reveal to us what you'd have us do. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.